Welcome back to the shed, except for we're not in the shed. We're virtual again for this episode. Our special guest, Cam of Vancouver, is back. We talked to him last episode, a whole bunch of stuff about ChatGPT, which was fascinating. But we will also hear about him and RJ in Portland playing foosball. For those of you who have played any kind of competitive sport, it doesn't really matter whether you've played foosball or not. You're going to hear a lot of stuff here that should ring some bells about your own experience. So here we go. So Cam, a couple quick questions for you. How about one question that combines two things? When did you first start playing foosball and skating, both of those, and, and why? Like what, what led you down that particular path? I grew up in rural Alberta. There still has not been the Google vehicle to drive by. There's no street <laughs> view right? of the house. My parents still live there. Um, wow. There's nothing. The only internet they have is satellite internet or dial-up. I didn't have proper internet until I was 24, which is late for people of my age. And all I had was a road. It was just a flat ground road. And one of the neighbors, he was probably six or seven years older than me, which seems like a lifetime when you're 10. And he skateboarded. And I just wanted to do what the older kids down the road were doing. And it took a while before I actually became hooked on it but i definitely have the personality to like you could have replaced skateboarding or foosball with anything that's engaging and i would have just fallen in love with it i like doing things i don't like sitting still i'm always busy occupied trying to progress at something and then once i started to get a little better at skateboarding being able to ollie i was just addicted and i've skated since then i was probably 10 or 12 years old I don't know the age, but I've been skating forever. I still identify more as a skateboarder than I do as anything else, even though my day-to-day actions, I'm more of a foosball player. But the whole reason that I got into promoting foosball was I would see people around me. I was 24 at this time-ish. And these people didn't work full-time jobs. They weren't reliant on like I couldn't go two weeks without a paycheck like I I was dependent on that salary coming in but my friends they could take months off and go on these crazy long trips and I realized that there are people out there that make money without sacrificing their time and I realized that a lot of these people aren't smarter than we are they just actually tried to do it and then I know I'm skipping over how I got into foosball but at this point I was already in foosball and I realized that I was really good at a game that costs a dollar. Um, <laughs> there's one moment where it all clicked. So I'm already on the thought process of how can I make passive income or how can I change the situation that I'm in? I have a job that is a dream job. If I'd heard that as a child that I was going to be a skate park designer, I wouldn't have believed you. And I wouldn't have thought that there could be anything better for me to do for the rest of my life. But after the harsh realization that it's just a job like every other job, I wanted to change. And I've had moments where one party remembers that moment forever and the other person has no idea that that burned into their brain. I had a guy that coached me as a child, or I was 17, I was playing hockey. He was the assistant coach. I guess I went up to him and I thanked him and I just wanted to like say goodbye to him after the season was over. We were leaving the parking lot for the last time. 
I'm no longer allowed to play minor hockey the next year. It's my last year as minor hockey. And I don't remember it, but he told me that he'll never forget me coming over. And that led to me coaching with him later in life. He, he asked me to come help when he was coaching Bantam AA, which is uh, 13, 14-year-olds. I guess I had a similar moment with my dad, but I was too young to recall it. We were driving in a car. I asked him, what is a lot of money? I have no idea about money at this time. And he told me that if I made $100,000, I could comfortably afford a wife and children. He said, it's not rich, but it's enough. And I guess my response to him was, so I just need to make $1 from every 10th person in the city because Edmonton had about a million people at the time. And I guess he was just like taken aback by it and was shocked and it stood out. And later he told me that. But there was a time when, again, 24, realizing I wanted something different and not sure if you guys talk about psychedelics much on this, but it was my first time doing mushrooms and it literally just clicked like the it couldn't have been more clear Hmm. i'm really good at a game that costs a dollar and i just need one dollar from every 10th person in the city to have a comfortable living and it all it changed the trajectory of my life Hmm. but uh to circle back to foosball and how i got into that i had a table when i was young my grandpa bought me a really cheap table And I honestly forgot that I had it until years later, I went home and found it in storage. It wasn't impressionable. I didn't fall in love with it, but I graduated high school a bit young. I started school a year early. I'm a small guy. So me at 17, I started working in a welding shop with grown men and it was very intimidating and they loved foosball. There was a table upstairs. These guys would bet a hundred bucks on a match I saw a guy get picked up by his throat and slammed against the wall. It was just super intimidating. So I would only play when no one else was around. But I started to get pretty good, and then I finally had enough courage to start playing with them at lunch breaks, and I got really addicted. But I realized that I didn't want to be like the guys that I worked with, (laughs) and it honestly scared me into going back to school. And then I went to study civil engineering, a two-year diploma, And during that time, there was a tornado table at the school. And I started playing tornado every day. A close friend of mine in the skate world, he's now married with three children. His brother-in-law was the captain of Team Canada. Richard, you know Will. Will Stranks. Oh, for sure, yeah. One of my close friends married Will's sister. And just one night we were hanging out. Emma, the wife, she had to leave because she had to go to a house party. It was Benjamin Wilkins' birthday. I don't know if you know Ben, but that's Will's goalie at the time. Thinking I was good, I thought I was going to go beat all the Team Canada members, and I got humbled immediately, but uh, I was addicted, and I played with Will every week, multiple times a week, up until I moved to Vancouver. Then the mushroom trip happened where I decided to start the league. My partner at the time, Dylan, Richard, you're very familiar with Dylan, uh, we both moved to Vancouver, oddly enough, on the same day. And we had no idea. We just ended up living like nine blocks from each other. And we started practicing together. We went to the Tornado World Championships in 2014. We won rookie doubles. We won two tables. Dylan sold his to pay for his schooling. I put mine in the pub. And I've had tables in the bar ever since. (laughs) 
That's fantastic. That is pretty wild. I the guy, guys at work playing foosball. That just I'm still stuck there. I mean, I haven't ever seen you pick someone up by their throat, Ken. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yes, uh, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's a cool, that, like I say, um, got play guys playing at work. I would have thought maybe firemen would do it, and that's about it. You know, like wow. For me, KJ's father ran a billiard hall. Did he run that pool hall upstairs as well, Moby? Upstairs from the the I said billiard hall. I meant to say bowling alley. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. Were, did they actually operate at the same time? I'm not even sure of that. I'm not sure, but in 1973, one day I saw them bring in a foosball table. It was one of those Italian ones with the blue and red men. And they just set it down and we just started playing it right off the bat. And, uh, yeah, I was hooked from the beginning. Hey Cam, I got a question for you because you grew up out in the middle of nowhere, long roads. What is the first bicycle you owned or the first bike that you really loved? Or did you ride bikes? I didn't ride bikes as much as all of the neighbors. It was very common where we lived. Like even just walking to the neighbor's house could take you 20 minutes. (laughs) But I never took the time to try to ride a bike. And I just lied to my friends. I told them that I could ride a bike, (laughs) but they'd never seen me ride a bike. And I just kind of avoided it. But one of the neighbors, they had a really tall scooter with like bike-sized wheels on it. And I would ride that when they brought those out and they would share them. But I never would ride it until one day they called me out and they said, I don't think you can ride a bike. Like you literally run beside us as we bike. (laughs) And luckily I had ridden the scooter so much that I actually could ride a bike. But I just like, I stuck to the lie until I got on the bike and it managed (laughs) to work and I I could ride a bike. But once I realized I rode a bike all the time, Um, but I had, it was a mongoose. It is a cheap BMX style bike that you would get from, maybe Walmart or Canadian Tire. And this was my first bike. It had pegs on the back, but I just left it in the front yard one time and my dad ran over it. And I was so heartbroken that he ran over my bike. But as soon as I picked up skateboarding, the bike was just gone. Like I, I forgot about it entirely. I only started biking again when I moved to Vancouver and I just liked to commute around the city. A different type of bike riding i was trying to do tricks before but now i just commute with it i like the exercise no traffic no parking the sign of good friends who call you out on stuff like that yeah yeah well for me uh i think i was around seven years old maybe eight uh and i was a little bit late to bikes from my friends i think and we we did not have a lot of money, but I didn't know that. I just thought, you know, we have a normal existence. It was a kind of almost like a little shack, but I just thought it was a great house. Loved it. And, uh, dad brought me home a used bike and I'm sure my face just totally dropped. It was like rust colored. All the kids had stingrays or Mustangs, whatever you call them. And I was just so disappointed. I didn't know how to ride a bike yet. And so I think he picked up on that. And within a day or two, he came home with a brand new pair of handlebars and a banana seat. And he put them on and I loved that bike. It just meant so much to me. (laughs) From then on, I was just like riding everywhere on. I just loved the feeling of it. It was very rural. So riding down dirt roads all the time and over little jumps and stuff. And I actually rode that right 
through until we came up to Rosslyn. I don't think I knew you guys yet. And I actually rode down Park Street. Oh. Yeah, yeah. On this little Mustang with one gear. And I zoomed right through that intersection. So good thing no car came along. And then I crashed maybe around Watkinson's or something like that down there. Oh. And, and that was the last time I rode that bike. You crashed? But, uh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, you know, but like kids crash, you know. Yeah. Not not enough to end up in the hospital, but it hurt. <laughs> but anyway, that was the end of that bike. <laughs> and so that's just a, a nice a nice childhood memory I have of that. That bike meant a lot to me. First time you realize you don't have money. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I think I, you're right. I think I picked up on that, that he had to kind of buy a used bike and then he got me the handlebars and. I didn't even realize my parents' home where I grew up and they still live is a trailer. I had no, it's a trailer on a concrete basement, but until I heard it, I, I had no idea. I just thought it was a house, but now that I look at it, it's so obviously a trailer on top of a basement. Yeah. And they're, and they're still in that house. Yeah. That's cool. That, that's one of the best things about being a kid is you're not burdened with stuff like that. It's a house. It's where I live. It's my house. That's what you call where you live. You're not. It was enough. Yeah. You know, we have a garage, we have front yard, backyard. Yeah. yeah. PJ, did you want to do the universe speaks? Oh, yeah. It won't take long. So my, um, I got a 21 year old daughter who has a car. She's going to SFU she called me in a panic one morning because she scraped somebody's car as she pulled into a parking space. What do I do? So this is one of those moral crises as a parent, you know, because as an individual, I would say, hop back in your car and find another parking space right away. (laughs) (laughs) But of course you can't say that. So she had already decided she was going to send this guy a note. You know, I said, well, I mean, it'll be a hit in your insurance Send me a picture, how much damage is. So she sends me the picture. And there's a scrape and a little crease just behind the front wheel well on the passenger side. Nothing huge, but there was a mark, right? And I just thought, oh, that's somebody's going to want to make a claim. And then da-da-da-da. So she leaves a note. And I'm thinking, nah, could be, you know, she'll leave a note. It'll blow away in the wind and everybody will end up happy. So she leaves a note. And she finds a plastic bag. She takes some food that she brought for lunch out of this bag and puts the note in it, tucks it under the windshield wiper. Because my next thought was, ah, oh, the rain will destroy it. and Everybody will go home happy. So I just thought, well, she covered it. And uh, about four days later, she got a text message. And the text message was, hi, my name's Aiden. And uh, sorry this took so long. Hope you haven't been worrying about it. I just don't care about that. Very nice of you to leave a note and you even put it in a plastic bag to make sure that it didn't get destroyed by the rain. Have a good life, basically. And I just thought, okay, all right, note to self. Maybe try not to be so cynical all the time. I was just so happy about it. Uh, And I would have bet any amount of money that wouldn't happen. So there you go, boys. Little, some kid, someplace, I don't know where. She must have picked up those morals from her mommy. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it wasn't me. It wasn't me at all. Uh, or good education or something. I don't know. But uh, I just yeah. couldn't believe it. I was so pleasantly surprised. It has something to do with it happening in, in, in a university parking lot where everybody is sort of the same age by and large. If you do that in the Save on Foods parking lot, I think maybe you get a different outcome. But again, 
at this point we get to all consider that's just my cynicism. No, that's great for her. I mean, that's. Oh, I was just so happy with the whole thing. I was happy for her, for me, for everybody. I thought it was great. I mean, if it was a car that really needed repairing, then that would work out as well too. I mean, usually I think the first claim's free generally. I don't know if they do that anymore, actually. I think they might've stopped that as a cost saving thing, but I don't know. Mm. My first accident was just like that backing. I think I was backing into a parking spot and I just, just went, I'd worked the night shift and I went straight from there into Kamloops to do some shopping or something. And, uh, yeah, that was one of those ones where I paid him cash Yeah. back in the day. If you had an old car, it wasn't like now it was like, okay, is a hundred dollars do it? And he goes, yep, that's fine. Yeah. So, cause he's not going to fix it. And it is kind of the same now for what it would cost to fix it. You're going to end up losing the car, right? If you make a claim, they'll take the car. And then now you have to face finding another car right. for what they would give you, which is might be adequate, but might not. It's just a big giant hassle just to replace one beater with another. Why even bother? But yeah, I was happy. That was all that was. It was just a, I, I'm so pleased that I even remembered the story, honestly, because that was in, I think, December, maybe November that that happened. KJ, can I put you on the spot? Yes. You've got uh, Carmen Burana, VSO. Carmina Burana, yeah. The Cowboy Tempest Cabaret. Well, okay, uh, this can probably be short too, but getting back to Chad and AI and self-serve checkouts. So at Washington State University, I sang in the choir and we did a couple of pieces from the Carmina Burana and an ex of mine who, uh, Ingrid Vancouver, who is now stage managing the Vancouver Symphony, thought that I'd be interested. And Dylan's birthday was on the 16th and he's a sort of a music geek. So I thought, oh, why don't I take Dylan? We go see the Carmina Burana. And it was excellent. We got uh, front row balcony, a little bit on the side, three soloists, the symphony orchestra, a massive, a rather large, it was, I think it's the Vancouver Bach Choir, so it's rather large, and then the Vancouver Children's Bach Choir, and uh, it was fantastic, fantastic. And I could hear little strains in the music, I thought, oh, I know that we sang some of this, but it wasn't that part, but it was like that, and then it finally got to the parts that we sang, and there was one where this, the baritone, he sings by himself and the choir responds to him. And I distinctly remember being called out by our instructor, Frank Green, who ran the choir, because I, I could sing and I enjoyed singing and I was standing beside the guy who had the baritone solo and he said, Kevin, why don't you take this solo this time round? And I basically shit the bed. <laughs> like I was, I was so nervous oh, to be doing it. The pressure. What a drag. What a drag. To, to be a soloist that I just kind of, my throat clenched and it uh, was awful. And he didn't ask me after that. But uh, <laughs> anyway, it was, uh, it was actually a, a real treat. And then the following day, I saw a reading of the Cowboy Tempest Cabaret, which is a piece written by Lucy 
and uh, Niall McNeil, who's neurodivergent, and music by Anton Lipovetsky, and it was fantastic. Lucy being KJ's daughter. Lucy being KJ's daughter. Uh, yeah. And they've also done King Arthur's Night, where um, Niall plays King Arthur, and it's in his. It's in his. It's a fantasy of his, right? But he plays King Arthur, and he's got there's goats involved, and it all happens at Harrison Hot Springs. They just actually shot the movie. They're shooting a movie version of it. Anyway, so Niall also writes this. But what they did in this piece is that the characters who are from Shakespeare's The Tempest, so you've got Prospero and Ariel and Miranda, and and they there's a narrator that kind of explains the story. It's set in cowboy times. So there's a lot of hands up and stuff like that. And the sheriff, who's called um, John Wayne 911, <laughs> is neurodivergent, right? So he's a Down syndrome kid. But what was amazing is that they used Niall's actual dialogue with the characters. Like Prospero would say things that Niall had written. It's almost like broken English. You know, like if you ever hear a Down syndrome kid talk, I don't even think I'm supposed to use that term. Uh, it's supposed to, you're supposed to say neurodivergent. Anyway, another uh, fantastic outing. So uh, shout out to my uh, children who accompanied me. Nice. That is nice. That's good. So Dylan accompanied you to Carmina Burana. Mm-hmm. And had he heard it before? Well, yes, you'll recognize it. It's all the... It's it's the It's perfume ads, isn't it? It's the big scary movie mm. soundtrack stuff. Okay. Okay. Finale O Fortuna is the big stuff. You there's other snippets of movies in it there too. I saw the note from Ingebergi there. That was cool, but I did not know that you had sung that at Washington State, Eastern Washington. Did not know and she must have remembered. So it was kind of cool. Yeah. I haven't heard her name in a long time, and poof, out of the blue, she sends it out. It's kind of cool. I didn't see her, but we did leave her flowers. Very so cool. That was nice. <laughs> Just to rewind a bit, though, when you tried that mm. uh, baritone part, yeah, I guess that was at WSU, was it? Mm. Um, and you were nervous, and you didn't do it well at all, and he never asked you to do... Like, did he come to understand that that was more stage fright or nerves I'm than anything sure else? He probably did. I, I have no idea. I mean, I'm mentioning that as a little bit of a lead-in, which just do a quick discussion of Cam and I played in a foosball tournament down in uh, Portland, Oregon. Oh. Just, uh, I think we re- returned maybe three days ago. We got back into town four days ago. Oh, Cam, I didn't know you'd gone down to that. I knew Rich went. I, wasn't, I didn't know you'd gone. We played together. I didn't have a chance to ask you, Cam, whether... Uh, this was one of your better tournaments or you were a little disappointed. Um, I know I've seen you like at Vegas last year, you were placing in the top, you're placing in pretty well every, every event you went in. And there's maybe a dozen events to go in at these things. So I don't know. How did you feel about this tournament? Mixed results. Uh, seems like most tournaments have a lot of highs and a lot of lows. Vegas, I played really well. I was really happy with my results in Vegas even I had cramps for the first time at home. I fast a lot and I was fasting while I was playing there. This was the most I've ever played 
as you win, you play more. If you lose twice, you're eliminated from an event. So if you're not playing well, you don't have nearly as much action. But there was a day with all singles. I'd played the night before, and I played right until they closed. I think they call matches until about 1.30 a.m. And if they call your match at 1.25, you end up playing potentially for up to an hour. Yeah. And then you have to wind down. You're in Vegas. Hotels pump with oxygen. <laughs> You're likely going to go get food. Everyone wants to stay up and hang out, whereas you should just go to bed and get a good night's sleep. End up going to bed around 4 a.m. after you're done eating and winding down. I had a match scheduled first thing in the morning. And then as soon as I entered the result, which was a win, they called me into another match. I entered that result, another match. And I had zero breaks from 11 a.m. until the 1.30 a.m. end of matches. The only breaks that I took were medical breaks. I had severe cramps. I ended up speaking to Terry Rue, who's multiple-time world champion, an entire family of world champions. One year, he won open doubles. His wife won women's doubles, and his daughter won junior doubles. All three of them went home, world, world champs. I don't know his position, but he works in the hospital. He's a medical guy. He's very, very mm -hmm. smart. And I just said, hey, I'm having these crazy cramps. Is there anything that I can do? He said that I'm way too late. Once the cramps kick in, you're hours behind what you needed to do. Right. And I drink a lot of water during the tournaments, more than I would yep. drink normally at home. He said that I had, since I wasn't eating and I wasn't drinking any electrolytes and I was going to the bathroom so much, drinking an entire right. bottle of water for every match, I was getting rid of all my nutrients. Oh, and yeah. it got to the point where my hand seized on the rod and I'm playing the biggest match of my life to this point in singles. And I ended up catching the ball on my three bar, which is the forward rod, the most important place to have it. And if I lose the ball, I lose possession. Even if I've called timeout, I had to pry my fingers open off the rod to get my hands from being locked. And even with that, I ended up getting the highest results I've placed. I was uh, in overtime a couple goals away from beating the doubles world champion at the time to finish seventh in singles out of a big pool. Vegas is one of the deepest majors there are. Um, so that was one of my better tournaments. Yeah. But this is my first tournament post-COVID, and I feel my game has progressed a lot during COVID. Then I went to the World Cup where I felt really good. Sorry, there's a spider crawling on my computer here. Let me get this off real quick. You don't hear that every day. He doesn't pay rent here. He doesn't get to stay. Um, so you went to the World Cup in not France? Yeah. Yep. That was a big one for me as well. I've been to the World Cup three different occasions. The first time I was an alternate and I didn't play any matches of value. I did get experience playing a lot of people for fun and just being experienced to the tables, the atmosphere. The next time I went, I'd qualified for men's doubles where I get to play with one partner and we find out who the best doubles team in the world is. We finished tied for ninth, which is really good. Oh yeah. Especially the first time entering that event. We were one goal away from being tied for fifth, but uh, that didn't happen. But this time was the first time that I played on the team event. 
And there are only two people that get to play singles. And the way this event works is the score accumulates over the entire match. So I was the starter for singles and I play a game which is a race to 10 goals. And then the doubles teams behind us, they'll play to 20 goals. Then the singles guy will play to 30 and then the last doubles team will play to 40. So if I lose 10 nothing, the team now has to overcome that deficit of 10 goals. They'll be starting the match at 10 nothing, which is a lot more pressure than I've ever faced. If I lose singles in Vegas or Portland, that's me. I lose singles, I'm out, that's it. But for the first time ever playing the team event, I played doubles and singles. So my first singles match went really well. Um, I didn't even, I wasn't going to even ask to play singles just because I don't believe that I'm the second best of all the players that were there. But I raised my hand. I said, I'm very comfortable on both the German table and the American table. I have both in my house. And with my good results and singles at Vegas, I just wanted to say, if it's an option, I'd love to take it. The team let me play. Uh, we were neck and neck until about the five or six goal mark. And then he took off and he was winning nine to six, but I managed to come back and win 10 to nine, which was a really big moment for me because it's hard to come back. It, it's really easy to let that game slip away, but I've proven to myself, I guess I'm just competing with the self-limiting beliefs in my head. Yeah. Yep. Once I get enough evidence that I can win these matches and I can hold myself against the best players in the world, it's harder to deny it when I have enough evidence. So this was a big moment for me. The team's watching as you play as well. Absolutely, yeah. So they're they're right there in and you and you know your team's watching you and how are you going to do here and you're down nine six. So they they must have let out a pretty big cheer as you made your way up that scoreboard. Definitely. Uh, I don't know if you know Taha. He's from Ottawa. A very strong goalie. Very strong player all around. He said to the rest of the team. Cam's going to win this. I didn't hear him say that, but knowing that he believed that I was going to come back is like, it's, it's nice. It's really yeah. uh, motivating for me. It's huge. So. Well, I was going to say, um, I've played in maybe uh, eight tournaments, I guess, seven, six or seven. And, uh, I definitely suffer from a lack of belief in myself and, and nerves all of a sudden every match, this counts for so much. Kind of like when you were singing that time, KJ, uh, and so I, I typically haven't done well in those kind of tournaments, but I don't know what it was, but down in, down in Oregon this time, I guess I had bits here and there where I'm kind of worried about things, but by far I had the best performance I've ever had in any tournament. And there were little moments like, um, I did really well in open singles for which I think people who have played me wouldn't kind of expect that. And I wouldn't really expect it. But by the time I got there, I had this kind of mode where I, th I, I'm pretty good at singles. You know, I get that in my head, uh, beat, uh, Robbie Hayes, who's a really good player. And it was first thing in the morning. And I think maybe he wasn't playing to his potential, but that didn't matter to me. That's not your fault. I mean, yeah, no. And, and, and it's early in the morning for you too. 10 AM, right? Uh, I didn't bring a closed can of beer to the table. Uh, <laughs> I'd already beat an amateur level player. Then I beat him. And then I beat, um, a guy from California who I saw beat Nico. 
And then I was on to play Jeff Pipkin Jr. And, you know, I don't know exactly what was going through my head. It was something along the lines of, hey, you know, I might be able to do okay against him, but he's a really good player. So I, I don't know if I was already defeated in my mind or not. Um, but I walked by Cam and R2, and Cam said this. He said, you can beat him. <laughs> just simple, just a simple statement. And R2's behind saying, yeah, you can, something like that. And that really flipped my mind going into that match. Like, I didn't play it like I was going to beat him. I certainly played it like I could. And he beat me 5-4 in the first game, and it's best two out of three. So you're down one game already against a really good player. And I looked at him, I said, I got four goals against you. I was just genuinely pleased. I wasn't trying to get in his head or anything, but... uh, Probably did. I don't know. He's a very experienced player, and he seemed... Mm -hmm. He seemed to take that at face value. Like I was, I was just very pleased with my own game and, uh, I think he played pretty well, but I beat him. And so that's, that's one of those examples where someone says, Hey, you can, you can do this. And it's not just an empty statement. It had, it had meaning. Cause I know Cam is, uh, can kid around at times, but he's earnest is not quite the right word, but he means things when he says them. So. Cool. Was it, were the odds really 90 to one or whatever that post said? They have, yeah, they have some kind of program running in the background that looks at who you've played and who they've played. And when there's an overlap that they've beaten a person who beat me and there's. So it was a, it was a real thing. I wasn't sure that post was just somebody having a laugh or what, but it was a real thing. Only based on a limited amount of data. Well, yeah, but still, still that. If you allowed gambling and you let the odds change based on who were betting, none of those odds are accurate. Yeah. No. There was a match against R2. R2 and Jeff from Canada played Jeff Pipkin Jr., who you were just speaking about, and Cody, who's ranked master. He's one of the best players in that area. And the odds were 19 to 1. And in my mind, there's no way that's 19 to 1. Like, no. This, to me, sounded like, I don't know how much you followed UFC or MMA in the beginning, but there was a lot of people making a lot of money on the crazy odds because they just didn't know. These styles are so different for the fighters. And the people that were experts would just go bet the house. Like this is like the odds just do not line up. And if I saw the odds that were on the screen, if I had the ability to bet with the odds that were on the screen that weekend, I think I would have made a lot of money. Mm. Yeah. There's no way that these are 90 to one or mm. even ridiculous numbers like 38 to 11. It's like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Still, whoever this is the first time they've added it. Whoever did that post was pretty excited, so I I took it knowing nothing at all. I thought, ooh, geez, he must have really done well, Rupert Pupkin Jr. But Jeff would definitely be the favorite. Yeah, oh for sure, no yeah. no doubt. Yeah. And I was lucky to draw uh, a high level pro player in the draw your partner that kind of starts the tournament out largely. So I got a whole bunch of good experience with that. And then Cam and I played together in pro am. And so again, I got to play deep into the field with, with Cam. So, uh, just the whole tournament was a blast for me because I somehow lost my, uh, self doubt and just played. Well, don't worry. It'll be right back. Yeah. I'll have my ups and downs, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah. I never answered your question. I got on a tangent. You were asking how I felt like I played. Um, I was just painting the picture that after COVID I started to get a lot of good results to the point where I got nervous and now I have to keep performing uh, this well. Yeah, yeah. At the beginning, 
it's easy. It's like, I have nothing to lose. You walking up to the table with Junior, it doesn't matter if you lose. You're supposed to lose that match. So there's no extra pressure. The most pressure is on Tony, the guy that wins every time. Like He needs to win, especially against an expert-level player, a pro player. It shouldn't even be close. So I kind of like coming at it from the underdog position. Yeah. And now I kind of feel like it's flipping. I notice when I go play matches... The players that I played for years now suck playing against me because they're nervous. Right. I can tell they don't want to be on the other side of the table, which is a weird <laughs> and new dynamic that I have to deal with. That's but fun. I played good in Vegas. I played good at the World Championships. I played really good at the Tornado World Championships in Lexington. But I took some time off of practicing. I put a lot of energy prior to World Cup. I was drilling and putting a lot of table time in. But I took a bit of a break and focused more on developing the business and the nonprofit. Life kind of just got in the way. In Colorado, I had good results, but I could have done better. Like even getting third in the DYP with an expert player, we could have won that. And I think we should have won that. Um, I had matches that I lost like right down to the wire, uh, meatball or meat nut, however people want to say it in the foosball world. There's the last ball, whoever gets that goal, that goal wins. Match ball. I lost a lot of those. I felt like my three bar was weak. And this weekend in Portland was a mix. I definitely proved that I can beat anybody in that room. And I had some really good moments. I played a really good, two really good matches against the best team in the world, in my opinion, Tony and Rob. I think they're the strongest team in the world when they're playing together. And we almost beat them. Jeff and I, well, we lost three games to one. But all three of the games that we lost were 5-4, and I dropped a lot of Jeff's passes. Had I just been warmed up catching his passes, I think that that match turns around really quickly. And I built a lot of confidence knowing that I can score against the best players in the world. They can't block my passing. They can't block my shooting. It comes down to just being able to perform at that level every ball for the entire weekend because those guys also don't make mistakes. Yeah, It's just going to be an all-offensive match all around. But I proved myself to a lot of people, I believe. And after I left, Jeff Pipkin Jr., the player that you were talking about in singles, he texted me and he wants to play pro doubles at Worlds. And that's a big opportunity for me. That is awesome. I wanted to play with Jeff for a long time. And I believe Jeff and I can beat any team in there. It's ours to lose. It's obviously a tough bracket, but... Nobody wants to go up against Jeff and me, I don't think. So no. it really motivated me to practice, and I'm excited for Vegas coming up, but even more excited for Worlds. So yeah, I'm feeling good on the table. That's going to be great. And uh, I, I bought my air ticket, so I'm playing Vegas as well. Holy. Can't wait. Yeah, it's going to be Any great. takeaways for you from Portland? Did you learn? Like, is there any, yeah, any takeaways? There would be small things like I lost my first open singles match against R2 from Finland. R2 is a great player, great guy, and he's played in Vancouver quite a bit. So he just passed through me at will from the defense area to the middle area, which is called from the two rod to the five rod. You're playing singles. You can play a workmanlike game where you're just moving the ball up one rod at a time. And just a, just a little thing. He just, he just said, I'll pass through you all day. Cause you're just moving your man back and forth. Stop moving it so much, you know, make some guesses, some strategic guesses as to where the ball might go. And 
that was it. I used that through the whole singles against anybody who was passing. I might block them 30 to 50% of the time. And that's, that's for me, that's really good. Uh, because there's a reason people do that. A lot of, a lot of people will pass 90% and better through that. Cam will, I'm sure. To get that straight, did he tell you that in that tournament, during that tournament, playing against you? or did t- Well, afterwards. It's still, it's kind of interesting. Like, that's pretty high-level competition. And for one player to, to just... Almost all players will do that. Just freely advise another, hey, you know what? I go through all... Like, that's just kind of wild. I just don't hear that. If you play someone... Like, uh, R2's great. We were rooming together, and he's, he's... I'd call him a friend. I think if you're playing at a very competitive level against someone who you are likely to meet again later in the competition... They might be careful about telling you some, mm. some magic trick that they were using against your game that they, they think that they might, that might come into play again. Yeah. Other than that, by and large, most players are going to be helpful to you. It just feels good. And I, I'm not, I don't know yeah. if all players do this, but I tell the local players, oh yeah, uh, against that pull kick that I shoot, it's always going to go into largely one area. I don't have time to aim it. Um, so I'll, I'll just tell little secrets like that to players. And if, if that means they're getting better against me, that means my game's going to get better. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. For me, I'll tell everyone. I'm going to make videos describing exactly my strategy offensively. Because the way it works is you can't cover everything. There's more open than there is closed. So even if you understand a good system or a good series, it doesn't matter if they know. If anything, it kind of helps because I build on it. Something that I learned from Tony and Rob, who are the best team in the world that I was playing against, Rob from the goalie is always going to start with the same thing, even if you block it, because he's going to make you stay home. If you're always changing around what you're doing, now you're kind of guessing. But if you establish, you either have to stay here or I'm going to continue to do this. Now you're forcing holes to be open. So if I tell you what I'm looking at, that's fine because if you're blocking that, I know what to do next. And I don't have to look yeah. at option B. If I look at option A and see that option A is blocked, I know yeah. option B is open without yeah. having to change where I'm looking. And I trust in my ability to make quick decisions and execute fast. So the things that I would avoid telling. So if Richard, for example, was not blocking something, I could say, Try, try not moving. That's the same advice that I actually would have given him. The less you move on two to five, the harder it is to block because it's now a timing game. You're determined if I don't move, yeah. you have to go over here versus you can take either option if you're just waiting and being patient. And now it's up to me to guess when to move. But things that I wouldn't say, like let's say I play Nico again. There's certain things that I've noticed in his defense as I'm shooting from the forward rod I might not say, oh, this is what I'm looking at. I don't necessarily want him to bait me into things, but I have no problem helping him in a lot of ways. But like Richard said, if you can make everyone around you better, they're going to force you to become better Mm because there's going to be players that are going to figure out your puzzle. And when you hit those players, it's better to know what to do. Learning it at the pub in Vancouver on a Wednesday night than when you paid 200 bucks to enter. And now you have to solve the problem in real time. Yeah, it's good to have got practice when somebody figures you out. Yeah. So 
it's good to develop flexibility. I rode home with R2, uh, drove home. And, uh, so we talked a lot about foosball, as you can imagine. And we talked about it at many different layers. The further you get from the ground, the more philosophical it becomes. So sometimes that's hard to figure out, but yeah, coming out of those discussions, my five rod, which is the center rod, I can pass at will through some people and that's great and everything. But once I'm playing against pro level players, that changes completely. Uh, my little fakes that will take a, a rookie or amateur level player off the ball, they just don't work. And so R2 gave me some very basic things that I kind of know about, but now I've got a little bit of a game plan to, uh, Cam, you'll know this about my game. I am now practicing in the basement, tossing the ball three or four times before I pass. Not going to, not going to do that every, every time, but you, you know, that that's one of the things that I often don't take the time to do and, and hovering over the ball. I do have a brush pass so I can hover over the ball and try and learn how to disguise it better. So those, those are just two little things. And I'm thinking if I try eight new things, not a good idea, but if I have a few things that I can focus on, those, those are a couple. Yeah. People under pressure end up executing the way they do at home when they practice. And if you're the type of player to only toss once and then pass, when it's a big point, you're likely going to toss once and then pass. Or if you shoot on the same timing, you set the ball up generally two and a half, three seconds, then you shoot. It's really hard to break that when you're in the moment, the lights are on, people are watching (laughs) you, it's being streamed to the world. You just kind of revert back to that. Yeah. And Richard, this might ring a bell because we played some really good teams in our Mm pro-am. And there was one guy that was passing really well, but I was also passing and scoring really well. You don't need to make every save. And some players get too focused on, I need to block everything all the time. But you only need to block the one when it's 4-4. You only need to block the important point. As long as you're successfully scoring as an offensive player, so if you can figure out what is it that they like to do when they practice, as that pressure builds and builds, you can take it away when you need to. Yeah, like You can let people have stuff earlier to give them this false sense of <laughs> success and then remove that as soon as you need to get a big block or need to get a step. I remember that. I think you told me before he passed that you knew how to block it. And the key block was on that fifth point. They needed five points. And he went uphill, I think, or wherever you went, you just, you just grabbed it. Yeah. I told you ahead of time, don't think that I'm crazy for the defense that I'm giving (laughs) and just trust the process because when I need that block, I'm going to get that block. And then it came to the point where it's, I think we won two games straight. So even if they had scored it, we still have a third game that we can win, but it was four, four in the second match point for us. And I knew. I made it seem like he could get away with this option every time that he tried it. And even to the point where I would let him make the pass and then I would pretend that I'm trying to race out there, making him confirm that he's faster than me. But as soon as it was the point that I needed, I didn't even wait for him to move. I just showed him the same pattern. Hey, it's open. And then I just came out ready for the steal and it worked perfectly. Hit my guy. Not only did I get the block, it jumped up to my forward rod. I immediately scored, game's over, everything's done. And as a goalie, I was quite aware that 
I'm going to get scored on. It's a percentages game and a really good forward when they're on fire, they're going to score at least 50% on you, maybe more. So I'd never get down when I got scored on because I knew you knew that. And when I was playing with uh, Michael Stahl, same thing. So yeah, Blake Robertson had score on me. I wouldn't really worry about it. Blake Robertson's a multiple time world, world champ. And yep. uh, I asked Richard to score nine goals out of the back, but I think he only got like seven. So. I think I got six or seven goals out of the back that match. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was a good one. Huh. <laughs> anyway, enough about us. Okay. I got to walk the dogs. I got to see if they plowed my street. I shoveled like mad. I did about an hour of shoveling this morning just because. Well, the neighbor got himself a new uh, electric uh, snowblower. <laughs> And, you you know, yeah, like I was in bed still, Sue got out there and he'd already done his entire driveway and it's a pretty big driveway. He came over and did about three quarters of hours. Is this John? He had had his new toy. It's uh, we have two John neighbors. Oh, the downhill Uh, one. Yeah. I call him Eastside John. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Well, I just, the old manual, this snow's wet too, wait a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Cam, it was great having yeah. you again. I forgot to mention earlier, you joined us for a couple excellent early episodes. I think they were in the, maybe the twenties PJ or something like that. 27, 28. That's going to go into the intro. I was thinking. Yeah, and we're already up around episode 150. This will be 155, I think. Perfect. Yeah, maybe. five and six. Really great having you back. Sorry we couldn't do it in the yeah. shed. That's always more fun, but I had this bad cold and didn't want to take any chances. I couldn't have got there today except public transit anyways, because my I just couldn't. Oh, there's Buddy. Here is Buddy. Buddy has been really well behaved, KJ. Did you no, take him for a good walk today? Nobody's here. <laughs> he doesn't know. All right. He doesn't know to bother us. Yeah, those two. Those it's two. sedatives. Don't lie to us. Anyway, Cam, it was great having you. Great hearing about all the stuff you've been doing with ChatGPT and and the other stuff as well. Yeah, great stories, Cam. Yeah. Appreciate the invite. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much. That's all we got time for today. Thanks so much to Cam of Vancouver for coming on. Really a pleasure to have him here with us. Hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. As always, if you have thoughts about anything that you heard here today, let us know. Just get in touch with us we had a lot of food for thought in this episode and it's not our usual stuff either so let us know if we should do more of this kind of stuff or whatever you think come back and hear us again see you later bye bye now Yeah, there was some information going on in there, wasn't there? In terms of straight gamesmanship, there was a lot going on in there. It was quite interesting because those concepts can be applied to any sport, pretty much. You know, hockey goaltenders, tennis players, any racket sport will have those same things going on. It's pretty interesting.